children to children's church at this time so you can head on out. Thank you to those who are helping with our children today. For the rest of us, if we could take our Bibles and go to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8 in our Bibles. By the way, I want to just add my word of welcome to you if you are uh, visiting with us today at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. I want to extend a special welcome to you. Thanks for being with us, worshiping with us today. And uh, to our, our church family, it's good to have our church family together. That's what this is, a, a weekly family reunion. I do be praying for those who are traveling. We have several, I think three families who are out right now traveling. It's that time of year. Uh, thank you for being here today, though it's always a joy to see you and to be together. Uh, just also want to invite you back tonight. Ryan mentioned there's the stump the pastor thing, but we're also going to be recognizing Ryan Rushing. He's beginning his ministry officially here with us at Cloverleaf. He's part of the family. I know he's been here for like four years as an intern, and so really we're giving him sort of a new title. Uh, he'll be coming, uh, becoming a pastor here at Cloverleaf, serving alongside with me. And tonight, after the evening service, we're going to take some time just to recognize that. We have cake. We're going to ha- hang out across the way. We always have a good time with that. So come back tonight for that. Also, we're going to take up a love offering for the rushing family. They're moving out here to Mobile. As you know, like there's costs that come along with that. We want to be a blessing to them. Uh, so I just would urge you, church family, to generously give to the rushing family. If you even put it in this morning, just mark that as love offering for the rushings uh, or tonight. We want to just be able to be a blessing and a help to them as they begin their ministry here with us at Cloverleaf. One other announcement. Um, in July, starting after next week, we've got the 4th of July thing, but starting the 11th, we're going to be doing a new members class. Uh, so several of you have been attending here for, for several weeks at Cloverleaf, and maybe you haven't considered this too much, but I, I want to throw the idea out there. I want to encourage you to consider joining us formally. Church membership is basically clarifying your commitment, saying, hey, this is my church home, and this is my church family. I'm committing to them. I'm going to become part of this body. I'm going to covenant with them. And we want to take several weeks just to go through what our church believes, what membership is, what those responsibilities entail. And uh, so those who are interested in joining starting July 11th, we'll meet here at the church before the evening service and take time to go through that. By the way, just coming to the class does not mean that you're obligating. You're just getting the information and saying, yeah, that's something I could do. I could join. I could become a member and then prayerfully make that decision. So I want to urge you to do that. I believe God's word would call us to be members of churches. And to stand back and withhold that commitment and say, I'm just going to kind of be on the edges would be actually disobedient to Scripture. So God's Word calls us not only to attend, but to commit and to be part of a church family. And so I would just encourage you to consider that. All right, Luke chapter 8 in our Bibles, continuing on this awesome study through the third gospel. Every day, according to some studies that have been done, on average, you're going to hear between 20,000 and 30,000 words. Now understand, that's an average, that may depend on how many people live at home with you, whether you work at home, whether you work with co-workers, but that's an average, 20,000 to 30,000 words a day. Now, let's be honest, most of what you hear or read or see, you promptly forget, right? It's just noise in the background, the radio is playing, or if you're like me, I, I like to work in Panera with that background chatter that I I'm really good at tuning out. I'm really good at tuning stuff out. Even when people are telling me stuff, I'm off somewhere else with the, with the fairies, space cadet, you know. But most of what we hear, we forget. In fact, uh, some studies have shown that we remember only 25% of what we hear. Uh, so the other 75% is sort of tuned out. By the way, there are some studies to suggest that women do indeed listen better than men. Uh, so wives, you're wondering, like, I say these things to my husband and he doesn't get it. There is actually some studies to suggest that men are not as good listeners as women are. You say, well, that's, uh, that's kind of discouraging, only 25%. For me as a communicator, that's kind of discouraging to know, you know, basically sort of one sermon out of the month is going to make it through on average, or one quarter of what I say is actually going to be remembered. That's why I try to make the points clear so you at least can come away being like, I knew what the message was about. I would urge you to learn how to become a better listener. Uh, just as an aside, according to the University of Missouri, three steps you can take to become a better listener. One of them is anticipate the speaker's next point, uh, which helps if they're giving you a num- number of points. There's three of them. That's the first one. Anticipate the next point. You're like, okay, that's point one. I wonder what next, the next point would be. What would be sort of the next logical thing? It kind of clues you in, so you're, you're listening for the next point. So you can anticipate. The second thing you can do as you're listening is analyze. Say, okay, the speaker is trying to convince me that I need to be a better listener. How is he going about doing that? Is he giving an illustration? Is he explaining? Sort of analyze how the point is being made. 
helps you sort of pay attention. Oh, he's telling a historical illustration now. Or he's giving a statistic, or he's citing some dumb article from the University of Missouri. You, so, you, so you anticipate, you analyze. And then thirdly, you make mental summaries as you go along. Okay, so far, Pastor Sam has talked about listening and the University of Missouri. And you make sort of a mental summary as you go along and as we go through the points. So just that's free to encourage you how to be, become a better listener. Listen, learning to become a good listener is hard work. Whether you're listening to a sermon or you're listening to a conversation, most of us listen not to understand but to respond. You're sort of having this, you're, you're listening to your spouse who's telling you, you know, why such and such needs to happen. You're thinking about, well, here's three reasons why they're wrong. Uh, and we don't actually understand. We need to learn how to listen so we can understand, not listen so we simply can respond. It is hard work, and I struggle with it. Both hands are up here. I'm working on becoming a better listener. Marriage has been a, a wonderful place to work on that, by the way. It is worthwhile. Listen, if you would rather have a friend who listens to you or talks over you, we're all taking the friend who listens. If you could have a choice between a friend who understands and one who argues, you're going to take the one who understands. Learning to be a good listener will make you a better friend, a better conversationalist, a better student if you're in school. Hey, how much better would it be if you actually remembered what the lecturer said rather than promptly forgetting it and then having to go back and try and relearn it before the test? But today my point is this. Becoming a good listener is essential to being a growing Christian. You can only be a growing Christian in so much, insofar as you are a good listener. Why? Because God communicates his truth to us through the written and the spoken word. So your, your Bibles are open to Luke chapter 8. Look at verse 18, and this is going to be sort of the heart of what we want to get at today. Luke chapter 8 and verse 18. Jesus says this, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. That's sort of the, the, the singular imperative in this paragraph, is take heed how you listen. Be careful how you listen. It's not enough just that you do listen, but how you listen. And it is a command from Jesus. This is the main point of this section. Back in verse number 8, he made a similar point. Look down in verse 8, and we saw this last week. So some of the seed fell on good ground, and it sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, in the Greek, let him hear is not just allow him to hear, but he must hear. It is an imperative. Verse 8, imperative. Everyone who has ears to hear must hear what I am saying. Verse 18, take heed, pay attention, be careful how you listen. Now listen to what? Listen to the truth that Jesus Christ is proclaiming. That is the key point. We have a responsibility, beloved, to carefully listen to God's truth. We can only grow as Christians. In fact, you can only become a Christian if you hear and understand and receive the gospel by faith. Hearing in and of itself does not save, but you cannot save, get saved without hearing. We have to understand the message, understand the truth of God's word in order to be a Christian and in order to grow as a Christian. So what are our responsibilities true to the truth? How should we go about listening so that we can actually listen effectively and appropriately? We're beginning in verse 16. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 21 today. First off, I want you to note, just sort of as a background, we must hear the truth. We must hear the truth. Verse 18 says, take heed how we hear. Uh, take heed how we hear. I just want to sort of back up and take this whole idea of listening and hearing the truth and kind of get a 30,000-foot view. You get on the airplane, right, and you get up to, to, to 30,000 feet, and you look down, and you can sort of see the, the lay of the ground, the Google Earth view, so to speak, of what's going on. The, this theme of listening to God's voice runs like a thread through the entirety of Scripture. From the opening chapters of the Bible, we find out that the Creator communes with His creation. In fact, Genesis 1 beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was out form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. The spirit hovers over the waters, and God said. So we get three verses into the Bible, and God is already speaking. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Just by the simple declaration of the creator, stuff comes into being. He creates. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. So God speaks, he deliberates, and then he, speak, he creates man. And in the next chapter, God speaks to Adam, and he says, I'm putting you in the Garden of Eden. Of all the trees of the Garden of Eden, thou mayest freely eat, but of one. God speaks, and he gives a command. 
when Adam and Eve fall, God comes, they, they sin, they eat the fruit, they go hide off in the shrubbery, shrubbery, and God says, where art thou, Adam? God speaks as he pursues after his rebellious creatures. We see this whole idea of hearing truth is just woven into the entire story of the Bible, God pursuing man with his voice, with his word, with his truth. In fact, it's, it says God came down to walk with man in the cool of the day, which suggests that God came, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would come daily to commune and walk with Adam and Eve. That is why he created us. He's our creator. He speaks. He pursues. He communes. It's part of God's plan to have a relationship with us. Just imagine having a relationship with someone who never, ever communicates. There's no verbal nor nonverbal communication. There's just, there's just, there's no communication. There's not a relationship without communication. God created us for a relationship. And part of that relationship is him communicating his truth to us and us hearing. We move on through the story of the Bible to Exodus. God delivers his people from Egypt and the plagues. And he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And he gives them his law. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Again, God spoke all these words. In Deuteronomy, God will highlight the fact that on that day that I gave the law, you didn't see an image, but you heard a voice, the spoken word, the way that God communicates with us. In fact, the key assertion, uh, the key confession, if you will, of Judaism in the Old Testament was Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Listen to his voice. Heed his voice. Israel's history is sort of the tragic story of Israel refusing to hear and heed God's truth. God speaks, he puts it out there, he writes it down, and they ignore it. In fact, this is part of our worship. See, the service we call our worship service, worship did not end when we sang the last song. We are continuing to worship as we hear God's word spoken. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not, not your hearts. So worship involves bowing down, but also listening to God. That is why the preaching and the reading of God's word is interwoven into our worship. Worship is not just a synonym for singing. Worship covers everything we do today. We sing to God, we pray to God, we listen from God, we heed his word. Whenever we hear God's word, we're not just getting a list of rules of stuff God's telling us to do, but God is revealing himself to us. It is revelatory, it is not arbitrary. You say, oh, God has all these commands. He's not just giving commands for no reason willy-nilly, but they are a reflection of who he is. We then move along to the New Testament, and to, 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 to John 1, verse 1, we say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is called the Word. Not to say that Jesus is the Bible or that the Bible is Jesus, but to say that he is the Logos, he is the message, he is the entire, all of the Godhead bodily communicating to the world what God is. That's Jesus. He is a God who speaks, a God who calls. Jesus, of course, preaching, using the word, saying, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. You even get to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation 22. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And he who hears, let him say, come. And whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. From Genesis to Revelation, we have a God who speaks, who calls for us to listen. So how should we hear the, the word of God? We should listen to it worshipfully, worshipfully, reverently, not just to get information, but to know God, to know what he's like, to enter into a relationship with him. So that brings us to our text, to our second point here. Not only must we hear the truth and listen worshipfully, secondly, we must share the truth, listen purposefully. So look at Luke chapter 8, verse 16. Jesus gives a parable. By the way, he's just given the parable of the sower, which is all about four different ways to hear God's truth. He then took the disciples aside. He's been speaking to them individually. Uh, the Gospel of Mark indicates that they're in a house. So here's Jesus just with his closest followers. No man, verse 16, when he has lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither is anything hid that shall not be made known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. For whosoever hath... To him shall be given, and whosoever has not, to him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. 
Kind of an odd little section there, isn't it? He just finished explaining the parable of the sower to the disciples, and then he says, take heed how you listen. In a sense, what he is telling the disciples is you've been given the light, and it's kind of dumb to have light and then cover it, right? Nobody does that. He says, you have the light so that you can shine it. You have the truth so you can share it. Light is meant to be seen. That is the, the parable that he gives in verse 16. He says, nobody lights a candle. And by the way, don't think candle with a wick, but think a, a terracotta clay lamp. And I had one that I meant to bring today to show you what that looks like. It's a little bowl that you'd have oil in and then a little wick coming out of that. You would light the wick and then the, the oil would fuel the light. So you light your little terracotta clay lamp. It says, you don't take it and then put a basket on top of it or, or, or a pot over the top of it. That's going to do two things. Nobody's going to see it, and then it'll deprive it of oxygen. The flame will go out. It says, you don't put it under a bed, uh, under a couch. You think, well, it'd be just fine under the bed. The way they had beds in the ancient world, they weren't up off the floor like ours were, but it was more like a, a bedroll, just a mat on the floor. So you put a mat on top of it, you put a blanket on top of it, it's going to extinguish the fire. By the way, that's how people sometimes try to extinguish a fire, smother it with a blanket. It says, nobody lights a light and then smothers the light. That's just absurd. It'd be like doing all the work at Christmas time of decorating the entire house. Christmas lights everywhere. You've got the icicles. The bushes are done. You've outlined the roof. Your house looks like a gingerbread house. And then you're like, honey, we're not going to turn them on. No, nope, we're going to put the lights up there just not turn them on. Okay, that would be ludicrous, and that would probably result in some kind of discussion between husband and wife, after all the work has been done, right? That would be absurd to put the lights in and never turn them on. Jesus says, yeah, of course that's ludicrous. This is sort of axiomatic. You put lights up so you can turn them on. Very simple analogy. In the analogy, truth is likened to the light. The last, last week we saw that the truth is like a seed. It goes into the ground and it gives life. Here he's saying truth is like light. Light comes in, it shows you where you're going, it gives you understanding. That's sort of the, the metaphor. The disciples have been given the light. Uh, look back in verses 9 and 10. When the, Jesus gives the parable of the sower, the disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? They're like, we don't understand this. And he said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, in riddles, that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Jesus is saying this, the 12 apostles, you guys have been divinely been given the ability and the opportunity to understand spiritual truth. Jesus takes them aside. Jesus explains them, to them the truth. The rest of them are all in the dark. They're kind of like, we have no clue what Jesus is, is saying. So Jesus is now coming along being like, you guys have insider knowledge, but this is not meant for you to come along and be like, huh, we understand and nobody else understands. Jesus is saying, no, I've given you the light. I've given you the truth. I've given you understanding of my truth. Not so that you can take it in a corner and, and feel like you're this little cult group that you alone understand, but so you can get other people to understand. That's the sense of it. The disciples have been given truth. Jesus has granted them understanding into the, the secrets of the kingdom. So light is meant to be seen, right? That's verse 16. Verse 17 then underscores this fact. Truth is meant to be told. Light is meant to be seen. So just as light is meant, is meant to be seen, so truth is meant to be told. And specifically, the truth of the good news, the truth of the gospel. So notice verse 17. For nothing is secret in order that it shall not be made manifest. Notice I added that phrase, in order that there is a purpose. Neither anything hidden that shall not be known and come Abroad. Now, Jesus uses this little saying in many, many contexts. Other contexts, he uses it in terms of judgment. Sin that you hide currently will one day be revealed on the day of judgment. And that's a, that is a sobering thought, to know that every word you speak, every thought you think, every motive you have, every animosity you shield in your heart will one day be laid bare before God. He's using that same proverb here to mean something different. He's saying something is currently secret, for nothing is secret, notice the is, the right now and the time that he's speaking this, that shall not, future tense, be made manifest. In other words, what Jesus is saying, disciples, the truth is currently hidden in these parables. The reason Jesus is speaking in parables is so that those who have rejected him won't understand. That's what he said in verse 10. He said, okay, the truth is sort of being concealed and veiled in this, in this riddle, in this parable, in this illustration. It's temporarily hidden. It's right now hidden. It's temporarily concealed, but later on it'll be made visible. It'll be made clear. So notice those words hidden, those words secret, uh, speaks of, of the current condition of truth as Jesus speaks it. 
One of the puzzles as you read the Gospels is that Jesus doesn't actually come out and say, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't do that. He's a little more veiled about it. He leaves sort of breadcrumbs and invites people who are interested, who are seeking to come to that conclusion. Why does he do that? Well, for one thing, people had a completely skewed understanding of who the Messiah was and what he would do. They believed the Messiah would come along, overthrow Rome, establish this kingdom, and you know, sort of make Israel great again. That was their idea of the Messiah. Jesus came to be a Messiah who would die on the cross for sinners, whose kingdom was spiritual, not earthly. Who, the membership in the kingdom was not based on ethnicity, but on faith. So he doesn't just come out and say it, it is veiled. Yet later on in the story of the Bible, you find out that the apostles are speaking very plainly and very boldly. You read uh, the, the Sermon on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Peter is very, very clear. This same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. Very clear. What was secret during this time of Jesus' ministry is made plain later on. So verse 17, there's a contrast between what is presently, temporarily hidden and what will be in the future revealed. So truth, Jesus is saying, is temporarily hidden while the disciples are learning it, while he is explaining it, so that, that, that purpose phrase, verse 17, what is that, that, that little word, that, that shall not be made manifest, it, it, it is hidden for the purpose that later on it will be revealed. One thing you get reading, especially Mark's gospel, is the disciples don't get it. Right? They're not ready to go out and start a missionary movement because they're still asking dumb questions themselves, right? They haven't learned the material yet enough to go out and actually do this. Think about flying an airplane. You don't exactly want the guy who's still sort of trying to figure out, like, what the wings are and how to, to you know, turn the lights on flying the 747. There needs to be a time of training. In the same way, the disciples need to go through a time of training so that they can then accurately and powerfully pro- proclaim the truth, So Jesus will tell them at times, don't tell anyone what I've just told you. It's not time yet. But what happens on the night, that Easter night in in, in Luke 24, verse 48, Jesus says, now it's time to go and tell. It it behooved the Son of Man to die, to suffer, to be buried, and to rise again the third day, and that faith in his name should be proclaimed among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So what happens? Everything changes at the resurrection. At the resurrection, after the cross, we see that Jesus is a sin-saving Messiah. He came to to deliver us from our sins, to redeem us from our iniquities. He's risen from the dead. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is Messiah. And now he says, go tell everyone about it. Temporarily hidden so it can be permanently revealed. Think of Christmas morning, right? You wrap all the presents up. You put them under the tree. Uh, There's going to be a big reveal coming. The resurrection was the big reveal. The wrapping paper came off. And so Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, You will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Here's the point. Truth is meant to be told. Right? So as we listen to the truth, we hear it, we listen to it worshipfully because it's God who is speaking. That was the first point. But we hear it purposefully because God holds us accountable and he expects us to tell other people about it. Here's a really simple application for you. What you learn today in the the message, teach to each other, right? Studies have shown that the best way to learn is to teach. So you you, you learn a little bit through hearing. You you forget 75% of it. You learn a little bit more if you're active and you're taking notes. Taking notes is a great way to be able to catch the, the sort of the germane points of any talk or lecture or sermon you're listening to. But if you really want something to, to remain with you for life, Go home after church every Sunday, take five minutes, sit down with your spouse or your family, take your notes and be like, so today we learned that God wants us to listen to his truth and we are to to hear the truth, share the truth, and and we'll go on through the sermon. I won't give you all the points right now. Uh, But you go through that and sort of recap that and explain it to someone else. The more times you can take God's truth, what you are learning in God's truth, and explain it to someone else, the more it will make the trip to the heart and stay with you for life. I know this from teaching, right? I've taught Greek for a couple of years. And, uh, man, I thought I knew Greek really well. I started teaching, and I learned more Greek teaching than I ever did sitting in a classroom. Anyone who's ever taught, you know that. You really get stuff down when you teach. So here's the point. We are meant to disciple others. We are meant to teach others. The truth is meant to be shared. You're listening to it so that you can teach it and explain it to someone else. That's why we sing hymns today. Like, I love to tell the story. We have a responsibility to tell what we have been taught. We have a responsibility to make this message known to the nations. Psalm 67, which Brian read, says, Let the nations be glad 
They're only going to be glad if they hear the truth. So let me give you some points of application on this. How are you going to go about doing this? How are we going to go about telling and sharing the truth? Let me give you some B statements. Uh, some B statements, like kind of Warren Wearsby would have his little commentaries that were, you know, be faithful and, and be, be trusting and those sort of things. Well, here, here's some B statements to apply this second point of sharing the truth. First off, be responsible. So now, what do I mean by be responsible? I mean, recognize that it is my responsibility, not just me, but each one of us saying this, it is my responsibility to speak the truth. Hey, it's awesome to be bringing Pastor Ryan on board One of the things Pastor Ryan and I will be doing is going out and telling people about Jesus and doing some evangelism together. But don't think, oh, good, we have two pastors now. They're going to do the work of evangelism. It is the job of the entire church to be speaking the truth. We've been given the light so we can share the light. So it means this, not saying, well, what I'll do, instead of telling people about Jesus, I'll see if I can just invite them to church, which that's a good thing, and then Pastor Sam can tell them about Jesus. Well, sure, invite them to church. I'll preach the gospel. But it's your job, your responsibility, beloved, each one of us, to speak the truth. I think we often fail to share the truth because we don't really think it's my job. Right? We think it's someone else's job to do. It's, you know, there's radio programs. There's TV programs. I'll send them money and they can do it. That's a really American response, right? If there's a problem, throw money at it and someone else can do it. No, 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 you do it. You share the gospel. Second, be intentional. As far as sharing the truth, we've got to be responsible. We've got to be intentional. This doesn't just happen. If you're saying, well, I, you know, I, I'm just sort of waiting for this golden opportunity and someone to just sort of fall down on their knees in front of me and say, what must I do to be saved? That doesn't happen unless you're the Apostle Paul and you've, you're in jail for sharing the gospel and there's an earthquake at midnight that opens the jail doors. For the rest of us, we're going to have to seek out these opportunities. By, by this, I mean, I mean this. Pray for God every day to give you opportunities. If you just committed to that one thing, you say, every morning I'm going to say, God, give me an opportunity today to have a Jesus conversation. It does two things. Engages God's power, but also raises my awareness. When I'm praying for something, I'm a lot more aware of those opportunities. If you say, I'll get around to witnessing to that coworker or, or speaking to that neighbor or reaching out to that family member, around to it never, ever happens. Uh, just, you know, just go take a look at some of the projects around your house that you have said, I'll get around to it, and that was eight years ago. Uh, things that we say we'll get around to, the things that are important to us, we intentionally carry out. So this means that you're going to be looking and seizing the opportunities to turn the conversation, to speak about Jesus. Here's a third encouragement to you about sharing the truth. Be hospitable. Hospitality means love of strangers. Now, I, what I don't mean by this is you have to throw big parties at your house every week in order to show, that, show people the gospel. Hospitality means making space in your lives for people. So that might mean making space literally in your house where you're like, hey, I'm going to have people come over. But it also means making space in your schedule, making space in your time, making space so you can invest in relationships. If we are always so busy with so many things that we never have time to stop and talk to people, we're too busy. So be, be hospitable. Learn how to ask questions came across an interesting statement from Francis Schaeffer, who was a great theologian. He says, I'm getting to know someone uh, for an hour. I will spend 55 minutes of that hour simply asking questions so I can understand where they're at, and then maybe the last five minutes pointing them to Jesus. That's a really fascinating statement from one of the great evangelists of the 20th century. Let me give you another suggestion here. So we want to we be responsible, be intentional, be hospitable, but be ready. What I mean by be ready is, is you know the gospel. You know how you could, what the message is and how you could share it with someone else. The, the gospel message is not a complicated message. It doesn't mean you have to be a theologian or have a master of divinity or a doctor of ministry. You simply need to know how you got saved and what Jesus did for you and be able to tell someone else about that. The gospel message is quite simple. It's that I am a sinner who cannot do anything to save myself. I've rebelled against God's law. My good works cannot save me. The, the only hope is for God to save me. Right? So all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. My sin deserves God's judgment. The wages of sin is death. I deserve hell. I am facing God's wrath because my sin is so heinous in his sight. And then we talk about the good news. God in his love sent Jesus into this world who lived the perfect life we couldn't and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again. That's the heart of the gospel message. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus in the place of sinners. 
But that in itself is not quite enough. We then need to call sinners to repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? Repent does not mean, well, I've got to turn over a new leaf. It means that I turn away from my sin in my heart. I have a change of mind, a change of heart about my sin and about Jesus. And believe means I put my reliance in Jesus and him alone. That's the germane point. People will naturally want to trust Jesus and their works or the thought that they're a good person. The gospel says, no, there's nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in us to demand or earn God's favor. Only what Jesus did can save us. And everyone who puts their trust in him will be saved. Not, not a super complicated message. It's who God is. It's who we are. It's what Christ has done. And it's the response that we must have. You say, man, I want to be better. I want to be more fluent in speaking the gospel. Because someone feels like a foreign language. Let me give you some, some action plan here. Uh, an action plan here on, on being ready. I like to give out books. Read the book, What is the Gospel? Uh, by Greg Gilbert. Simple little, like, 100-page book. Several of you have read it. In fact, we have a little pamphlet version out there in the foyer. But buy the book on Amazon, read the book, and it gives you just a great explanation of what the gospel message is. The better you know the gospel message, the better you'll be able to share it. Here's something else you can do. I want to recommend a message here. It's called Hell's Best Kept Secret. Anybody listen to Hell's Best Kept Secret? Okay, one person. Okay, homework for this afternoon is go online and listen to Hell's Best Kept Secret by Ray Comfort. And it's a wonderful message about how to share your faith using the Ten Commandments well worth your time. He's from New Zealand, which makes him just automatically awesome. Um, I'm from New Zealand as well, you know. But, um, and here's another action plan. Ask someone to mentor you. You say, I, I don't know how to share the gospel. I want to. I know I should. Talk to me after the service. I would love to meet with you on a weekly basis. We'll find some time to go get coffee, to go have a meal, and we'll just talk week after week about how we can get better at sharing our faith. All right, one last statement here under share the, share the truth. We've got to be realistic. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to go out and start telling people about Jesus, and they're all going to believe in Jesus and be converted, and we're going to start a revival here in Mobile. That would be awesome. But listen, it is not actually our job to convert people. It is not our job to convert people. That is God's job. God does the saving. God grants the faith. God brings repentance. Our job is simply to speak the truth. So if we say our goal as a church is to see 100 people get saved, we don't actually have control over who gets saved and who doesn't. But if we say our goal as a church is to have 100 Jesus conversations, and a Jesus conversation is when you talk to someone about Jesus, not just, hey, come to church, but come to Jesus. Come to Christ, put your faith in him. If we make it our goal to say we're going to speak the gospel to as many people as we can, God will see to it that the results come about that he wants to achieve. Our job is to be faithful. Listen, telling someone about Jesus is different than inviting them to VBS. It is different than saying come to church sometime. It is actually taking the responsibility that God has given you to speak the gospel. So that's really the heart of the message that I wanted to get across. We, we're to hear the truth worshipfully. Listen to it worshipfully. We are to, to listen to the truth purposefully because we are called upon to share it. You listen a whole lot better if you know that it's going to be on the test. I know that as a teacher. Students start to kind of glaze over and say, okay, what I'm about to tell you is on the test. Pens come up. Keyboards start rattling. This is going to be on the test. The test is going to be this week as you go out and about in this community, and God gives you opportunities that you are called to speak the gospel. Don't fail that test. Okay, a third responsibility to the truth. We're to hear the truth. We're to share the truth. Thirdly, we are to treasure the truth. Notice verse 18. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. Okay, listen carefully because you're going to be telling this. And then he goes on to say, why? For whosoever has, to him shall be given. And whosoever has not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Huh? It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Who has what? Take care how you listen. Not good enough just to listen. Listen carefully. That is what he is saying here. By the way, um, before I dig into the second part of verse 18, listen how you hear. Take heed. That's a present tense. It's not just a do it one time. I listened really well one time. This is a call to a lifelong practice of listening to God's word well and listening to it carefully. I'm not just talking about conversion. I heard the gospel and I got saved. The Christian life is one of listening to God's truth day by day and week by week. In fact, God in his wisdom set up a, 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 a relationship, a family, an institution whereby we can gather every week and hear his truth. It's called the church. That's one of the reasons God gave us the church is so that we can come together and hear the word regularly and faithfully. 
lifelong pursuit. So what's the reason? Verse 18 says, listen carefully. Why? Because the person who has is going to get more, and the person who does not have will lose whatever they think they have. The person who has faith, the person who has truth, the person who responds positively to the truth, God will give them more truth. And those who reject what little truth God has will get more darkness. Light received brings more light. Light rejected brings darkness. That is what Jesus is saying. Truth produces more truth. It produces fruit in our lives. By the way, that was the point of the parable of the sower. Look at verse 15. That on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. They receive the truth, the seed, the gospel, the the truth that God grants them, and the result is a harvest. Truth produces truth. One of the signs that you have been genuinely saved is that you will have a hunger for more and more of God's truth. As newborn babes desire, long for the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Do you have a hunger for God's word? So you say, okay, you become a believer in Jesus, and someone's like, hey, I want to do a Bible study with you, and you're like, more Bible, really? Really? Like, I, I don't really have time for that. Might be a sign that the truth hasn't actually made the trip to your heart. Or you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but going to church, reading my Bible, like, I can't stand that. It's such hard work, and it's... Uh, If there's not a hunger for God's truth, you may not have God's truth. It may be that your heart needs to be regenerated. You need to be saved. I'm being dead serious here. Just because you say you're a Christian, just because you prayed a sinner's prayer, does not mean that you are a Christian. There will be signs of life. If you're looking at someone's life, you're taking a pulse, you're checking the heartbeat, you're looking for brainwave activity. One of the sort of brainwave activity pulses that we will have in the Christian life is a hunger for God's truth. doesn't mean that we're perfect in this. There's days that go by where I miss my devotions. There's weeks that go by where I don't listen as carefully as I should. But there will be a hunger. Now, the opposite is also true. He says, whoever does not have from him will be taken even which he seems to have. Think about the Pharisees. They were like, man, we are expert in God's, in God's truth, but then they rejected Jesus. What they seemed to have, they didn't really have. They thought they had a grasp of truth they didn't really have, and they lost even that. As we reject truth, what happens is we begin to get harder and harder to the truth. So spiritually, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Spiritually, those who have an eagerness to hear the truth will get more truth. They will learn more. They will want more. And the more they get, the more they'll want. And the poor, that is those who don't, love the truth, who don't want the truth, will go further and further into error. So kind of the opposite of a spiritual socialism here, but rather the rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer when it comes to spiritual truth. What does it say, treasure the truth? If you don't treasure the truth, you may lose the truth, right? If you don't hang on to the truth, you may, you may begin to become blind to the truth, Treasure it. Love it. Is there a treasuring? Is there a hungering? Is there a longing for truth in your life? If I were to examine your life, would I see... By the way, when I say truth, that's synonymous overall with Scripture. If I were to examine your life, if I were to look at your schedule, would I see a priority in your life that says, I want the truth above everything else? Or is it kind of an add-on? Is it something that's done when, when convenient? And, done, and left undone when it's inconvenient? Or is it a priority? Treasure the truth. But finally, we are called to obey the truth. Notice verse 19. Then came to him his mother and his brothers, his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. Okay, we're not talking about the, the press as in the, the media, but rather the, the press of the crowd. There's a huge crowd surrounding Jesus. In Mark's gospel, we find that Jesus is actually in a house, and there's just a huge crowd of people surrounding the house. Jesus is like the biggest celebrity to ever, to ever really come into the Galilee region. And so there's thousands of people surrounding this little house. They're sitting in the windowsills. They're at the door. They're in the house all around him, and people are packed in there like sardines. So Jesus' family comes along, and we find out in Mark's gospel, they're actually trying to stage an intervention. They think that Jesus is off his rocker. They think that he's crazy. Uh, They don't believe that he's the Messiah. They're like, he's getting kind of delusional. We need to stage an intervention before he just goes completely la-la. That's what what they believe. They don't don't actually believe him to be the Messiah. Now, we know that Mary does based on earlier. But his brothers, they don't. Uh, In John 7, we find out that they don't believe that he's the Messiah. They don't believe until later, in fact, at the resurrection. 
So Jesus' earthly family shows up to stage this intervention. Um, That little phrase, his mother and his brothers, reminds us of the true humanity of Jesus. We know that he's truly God in the flesh, but don't forget that he's also truly man. He he had real family relationships. These would be his half-brothers, because Jesus' mother is Mary, but Joseph is not his physical father. These would be subsequent children uh, through Mary and Joseph. We get that indication in in Matthew 1. Jesus was the firstborn, and Mary and Joseph then went on to have a normal relationship after that. We find out in in, in Mark chapter 6 that these guys have names. There's James and Joseph, and there's other brothers and sisters. Uh, There is literally not a shred of uh, evidence to suggest that the the false notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary, not taught in Scripture. Mary, yes, she was godly. She trusted God. God used her. But she was not the sort of super spiritual individual who was perpetually a virgin. No, no, no. She she was a normal human being like the rest of us that God used in an awesome way. So this text does illustrate by way of passing that Mary and Joseph had subsequent children after Jesus the firstborn. Either way, they're trying to get to Jesus. They cannot access him. Uh, they, they, They cannot come together. They cannot meet him or join him. So they're sort of on the outside, big crowd of people listening to Jesus teach. And so they send a message through the crowd. We continue on, look at verse 20. And it was told him by certain, which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, stand outside, desiring to see you. So here they are outside, and they want, to, they want to see Jesus. They want to talk to Jesus. And they sort of send, uh, sort of like telephone, send the message through the crowd. Hey, Jesus, your family's outside. They want to come see you. And they, so the message finally makes its way to Jesus. Jesus, your, your, your mother, your brothers, they want to see you. They want to get with you. Uh, and they can't. By the way, isn't it ironic that the physical family of Jesus is on the outside, and then all of these strangers are on the inside, these disciples who have no relation to Jesus, are on the inside. You know, sometimes people think that family relationships somehow get them closer to God. I hear this quite a bit, and I think it's kind of a prevalent idea where we're in the Bible Belt, which there's some wonderful things about that. But it does lead people sometimes to think, well, I grew up going to church. My daddy was a deacon. My, my mommy was a real saint. I, I grew up going to vacation Bible school. I memorized verses in, vac- in Awana. And because of my physical relationships with these other people who are good Christians, I too must also be a Christian. Friends, if physical proximity to Jesus did not save his own family, physical proximity to people who happen to follow Jesus will surely not save you either. If it didn't work for Mary, it's surely not going to work for you. Or as has been said, I believe it was John Wesley who says, God has no grandchildren, only children. In other words, just because mom and dad were Christians, just because you grew up in a good moral home, just because you sort of believe generically the things of the Christian faith, does not mean that you are a Christian. We come as individuals. We enter the kingdom as individuals. We enter God's family as individuals, not in groups, not as families. Each one of us have a responsibility to believe in Christ. And if you're here today and you've not believed in Jesus, maybe your spouse is a believer. Man, I'm married to this this wife, she's a Christian, or I'm married to a husband, he's a Christian. I'm kind of here today, just I like being with them at church. does not make you a Christian yourself. You must believe in Jesus. Now contrast Jesus' earthly family with Jesus' eternal family. Verse 21 He answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Now, he's not saying, I hate my family. They don't really matter. But he's saying, I have a truer, deeper relationship with the people who are sitting here listening and doing my word. This is the climax of really all of uh, of Luke 8, 1 to 21. It's been all about hearing God's word. You have these different responses, parable of the soils, parable of the sower. You need to hear the word so you can share it. And then Jesus is saying here, Listening and doing the word is what puts you into the family of God. This is all, of course, the result of faith. He's not saying that obedience itself saves you. What he is saying is we are saved by faith, and if we truly believe what God says, we're going to do it, right? You hear it, you believe it, and you do it. Obedience is the real test of faith. We saw this just over a page in Luke chapter 6. Look at verse 46. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? 
In other words, it's pointless to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, when you don't obey Jesus. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I'll show you to whom he is like, verse 48, Luke 6. He's like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. There's an eternity of difference between hearing and doing God's word in faith, and hearing it but not doing it because you don't actually believe it. We have a responsibility to obey the truth. Obedience is the test of faith. If you say, I believe in Jesus, you ought to be able to prove it by your obedience to Jesus. Now back to our text in, in Luke 8, verse 21. Uh, my, my mother and my brethren, okay, those who are in a relationship with me spiritually are these which hear the word and do it. It's not that there's sort of, okay, group A that hears the word, they're in the family, and those who do it, they're, no, the, the, the way this is put together in the Greek, there's one article. The ones who hear and do. We're talking about the same individuals. The, the ones who hear it and do it, those kinds of individuals are the ones who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Both hearing and doing are essential. So when you hear the word of God, talked about having Jesus conversations. Are you going to do it? That's the question. You can hear, yeah, that's interesting, those B statements you made earlier, those are fascinating. Will you this week commit to saying, yep, I'll go out and just have one Jesus, Jesus conversation. I'm just going to look for one opportunity this week to tell someone about Jesus, and then I'll do the same again next week. Could you imagine, by the way, if we had an entire church, now we're missing quite a few people here today, but 60, 70 people in our church, if all 60, 70 people made it their ambition every week to have one Jesus conversation, all right, so that's 70 Jesus conversations a week. Multiply that by 50, 52 over the course of a year. That's a lot of Jesus conversations happening. If we actually said, okay, I'm called to do this, and I'm going to actually do it, not just say I'm going to get around to it, or someone else will do it, or, yep, I know I need to do better at that. A failure to obey is disobedience, right? It's sin. We're called to obey the word. Do you ask God when you read the word to search your heart and say, God, where do I need to grow? How can I apply this? Now, this also says something else about the nature of the church. Notice what he compares the church to. A family. A family. The church is not primarily a religious institution where we, you know, got pews and stained glass. And by the way, we do have pews here. It's not primarily a building. It's not primarily an organization. It is primarily a family. In fact, one of the things we've been learning in 1 Timothy 3 is that the church is precisely that. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15 says, If I tarry long, that thou mightest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Not referring this building is not the house of God. All right, this is not the house of God. This is just a building. That word house of God, literally the idea of the family, the household of God. We are family. We are brothers and sisters I'm not some priest who's got special access to God. I'm one of the brothers. I'm one of you. We are all part of this together. In fact, that's why Paul says just a chapter or two chapters over to Timothy, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. The younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger, sister, younger as sisters. That's what the church is meant to be. And Jesus is suggesting here, not just suggesting, actually stating that our spiritual relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ take higher precedence than those with your physical family. In other words, your spiritual relationships within the church take higher precedence than the physical relationships with your own family. Now, maybe that sounds like heresy to you because you're like, family is number one. Family is most important. If my family needs to go to the beach and spend time together, that's more important than being in church. Not according to Jesus. He says the family, his family, the, the truest family are those who believe in Jesus together. Now, that's not to say that your earthly family doesn't matter. It is an amazing gift of God. God established and ordained the family. Those who attack and undermine the family are attacking and trying to undermine the very authority of God. But I am saying this, we can make an idolatry out of that which is good. That's what idolatry is, is taking that which is good and putting it to a place that is ultimate. Family is a good thing, but it is not an ultimate thing. Your kids are a wonderful gift from God, but they are not ultimate. Your spouse is a good gift from God, but she is not or he is not ultimate. Jesus Christ is ultimate. And our relationships with other believers are actually more crucial. You will spend all eternity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
you may not necessarily spend all eternity with your earthly family if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's a sobering reality to consider my, my kids don't know Jesus as Savior. It should be your greatest ambition to, to see them come to faith in Jesus. But the point here, the church is not united by, well, we're all just sort of, well, we're all kind of related here, or we all have the same common interests. The church is not based on common ethnicity. The church is not based on common interests. It is based on common faith in Jesus Christ. That's why it is so wrong-headed to try and divide the church along those lines. I'll be honest, there is no black church. There is no white church. There is just the church of Jesus Christ. And those who would divide it along those lines are doing violence to the unity of the body of Christ. That we are called to be one family. There's the church of Jesus Christ, and we are family because we hear and heed God's word in faith, and it doesn't matter how much melanin is in your skin or what, what gender you are, we are brought together into a family. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's how we should relate to one another. We relate to one another as brothers and sisters, as family. That's how this works. That's how Jesus set it up. We're called to take the truth very seriously. Verse 18, take heed how ye hear. How well are you hearing God's truth, even this morning? How well are you hearing God's truth as you read it throughout the week, as you hear it on the radio? Are you listening to it worshipfully as the Creator communes, as the lawgiver commands, as the Savior calls? Are you sharing the truth? Are you listening even this morning purposefully being like, okay, I'm listening so that I can go teach someone else. I can talk about this over lunch and throughout the week have Jesus conversations. Remember, light is meant to be seen. Truth is meant to be told. Are you treasuring the truth? Like, Man, this is important. I've got to receive the truth so it can be fruitful in my life. And are you obeying the truth, recognizing that listening obediently is the mark of the one who is part of the family of God? That is what Jesus calls us to. So as we hear the truth, may we not be those who forget 75% of what Jesus tells us, but those who listen so carefully, we bring it into our lives and we treasure it. May we hear and heed God's truth. Father, work in our hearts. May we go out of here with a commitment to listen worshipfully, to listen evangelistically, to listen carefully, to listen obediently.